Lose yourself in the latest and best blockbusters on Now TV. Hunt down vengeful enemies with Gemini Man. Confront your darkest fears in It Chapter 2. And journey with extraordinary heroes in Frozen 2, Angry Birds Movie 2, and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Stream all these and more with a seven-day free trial. Only on Now TV. 18 plus UK only. New cinema customers only. Parcel to renews at 11.99 a month unless cancelled terms apply. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. In today's somewhat bumper episode, we're going to discuss a group of organisms most people are aware of, but few know much about. Sponges. In particular, we're going to explore the population dynamics and ecology of the vase sponge, as we discuss the recent heredity paper, Oceanal Geographic Features and Limited Dispersal Shape the Population Genetic Structure of the Vaz Sponge, Essenia Campana, in the Greater Caribbean. And this is a long episode, but once you hear how incredibly fascinating and complex these seemingly simple organisms are, I think you'll understand why. So first of all, welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please both introduce yourselves? Okay, hi, my name is Sarah Griffiths and I'm a lecturer in ecology and conservation genetics at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. And my name is Don Berenger and I'm a professor of marine and disease ecology at the University of Florida. Well, thank you both for joining me. This paper is focused on sponges, which I think everybody listening will know about, but maybe they won't actually know that much about them as an organism. So could you just tell us a bit about sponges in general and why they're interesting to study? Yeah, so I think sponges are often a bit misunderstood and they, you know, fly under the radar a little bit, but they're a really interesting group. They are aquatic invertebrates that are found mainly in marine ecosystems, but also there is a family found in freshwater ecosystems as well. Um, So they're relatively simple. They're basal metazoans. They don't have organs or a circulatory system or a digestive system or things like that. And they make their living from filter feeding mostly. There are some carnivorous sponges actually in the deep sea Uh, yeah really cool Um, also in caves Uh, but the vast majority are filter feeders and they're a hugely successful group so there's over 8,500 described species many many more that are undescribed and they're very diverse they're found in the deep sea they're found in caves they're found in uh, shallow areas they're even found in the intertidal zone and they're found from the tropics to the arctic regions so they're very interesting from an ecological perspective. Uh, in some systems, they are the main habitat providers. They're very abundant, very high biomass. And also this filter feeding is very key to their importance to the ecology of a system. So as they suck water in through their pores, they take out what they need from it and they really alter the characteristics of the water column. Oh, fantastic. Um, Yeah, I don't think anybody would think that they were nearly as interesting as that. I had no idea there were carnivorous ones. That's cool. In this paper, you focused in on a particular species of vase sponge. And I wonder why you chose them and why this species in particular is interesting. Yeah, so this species is very common in the Caribbean. And the Caribbean is a very interesting area to study sponges because in coral reefs in a lot of areas, uh, now in the Caribbean, the coral cover has declined significantly. And you'd actually more call them sponge reefs in some areas now because they're really starting to dominate the benthic biomass. But this species in particular caught our attention because of its current situation in Florida. So I'll hand over to Don to talk a little bit about the sponge there. 
Sure, yeah. The bay sponges are particularly abundant throughout the Caribbean, but in the Florida Keys, they're very abundant. And in some areas, like Sarah was saying, sponges have begun to become the primary habitat-forming organisms on coral reefs. But in what we call hard-bottom habitat, which is, it's still calcium carbonate, you know, rock-based substrate, but it's relatively flat, shallow tropical habitat and featureless other than the organisms that live there. And a lot of organisms will use hard bottom habitat as a nursery grounds. And the hard bottom is littered with sponges of all sorts of different types and species, but some of them are quite large. So these vase sponges that we're studying, I mean, of course, they start off really tiny, you know, just a larvae that settles to the bottom, but they get to be quite large. So a large vase sponge or Cinea campana might be, you know, like the size of a medicine ball. And they're oftentimes a little bit undercut, as are some of the other species there. So they provide lots of habitat for organisms to hide underneath of them. And then there's lots of organisms that live within the interstices of the sponge. So within those channels that Sarah was talking about, where the sponges pull the water in and they filter out certain particles, organisms will actually live within the sponges. So they live in those holes, in those tubes, and actually between the cells of the sponge. Because sponges, you know, as Sarah mentioned, they don't have tissues per se. So they're only at the cellular level of organization. But part of the problem, to I guess return full circle to your question, is the issues in the Florida Keys um, have been changes in water quality over the past several decades have resulted in massive blooms of cyanobacteria, which is a single-celled algae, and the water turned just absolutely pea green, it actually gets a little bit more viscous. So the water is a little thicker, you know, because this algae actually produces a mucilage. Well, that mucilage, that viscosity of the water, we've shown in some experiments, actually chokes the sponges and it kills them. So long story short, what happens when you have these blooms, you have massive areas of sponges that are killed off, and particularly these vase sponges, which are so abundant and so important for the organisms that live there. And so that's really kind of what got us, you know, sort of keyed in on this particular species and looking into potentially restoring those populations. I mean, it's it's really obvious from what you've been saying there how important these sponges are and the problem that they're facing. And I guess... Now would be a good time to kind of hear exactly what it was that you were aiming to find out in the study. So obviously you have these sort of big problems, but what was it you were particularly aiming to find out? Yeah, so these mass mortalities, they really got us thinking about the kind of capacity for resilience in this species. So obviously they're sessile as adults, they can't move. So their dispersal is limited to the larval stage. So in times of environmental change, uh, obviously it's quite hard for them to get away and then to come back again to that area once the environmental change has passed, like these cyanobacterial blooms, for example. So what we really wanted to think about was what was the population structure of this species. We wanted to look at patterns of gene flow and what particular features affect gene flow in this species. Coming on to that as well, how genetically diverse are sponge populations? So has this been affected by those past mass mortalities that we've seen? So really, is their resilience coming from genetic diversity or have they got a better capacity for recruitment from other areas than we might expect by their short larval duration? Mm, fantastic. And I guess you kind of mentioned the, uh, the structure a couple of times and you keep on throwing out 
place names like the Caribbean and Florida. So I guess the, the sort of first thing that I'm kind of curious about in what you did was uh, how you collected your samples. Did you get to visit lots of cool places yourselves? Yeah, well, that was a that was a fun part of the study, that's for sure. But as with a lot of projects, you know, there's a whole lot of scientific collaboration going on. It was a real team effort mm. and we couldn't have done it without the help of a lot of people. So yeah, this was some work that I did for my PhD. So I did do the majority of the field work. I went down to Florida for a summer and Don and Mark Butler, who's another author on this paper, uh, they have a whole army of grad students down there studying all <laughs> all aspects of the ecology of the system down in the Florida Keys and Florida Bay area. So I joined them and we collected a lot of samples from Florida. Yeah, another particularly exciting opportunity that came up was um, with Thierry Perez, who's another author on the paper, who organized a three-week uh, research cruise in the Lesser Antilles. So that was a really cool opportunity to sample in that area. And I think previous to that, there wasn't any studies on sponges that had sampled in that particular location at all. So it was really cool to get the chance to do that. But yeah, like I say, I have to give thanks to people who collected samples or donated samples for us as well. So that includes uh, Chris Freeman, he collected those samples from Gray's Reef, um, and Frederica Cleaver, who collected for me in Belize as well. So yeah, thanks to those guys. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi, I'm Natalie Pinkham, and you can subscribe to my podcast, In the Pink, to hear in-depth chats with some of the brightest stars in sport and entertainment. Gain an insight into the hearts and minds of the likes of Richard Potticino and Kelly Holmes, through to Ronan Keating and James Blunt. The one thing they all have in common is a compelling life story. This week is an F1 bonanza, with rising stars George Russell and Alex Albon. And then I sit down with legendary DJ Trevor Nelson. Join me to hear what really makes these people tick. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's always slightly heartbreaking when you hear people who basically just sit in the lab and get samples sent to them. But I mean, your sample map looks amazing. So it's great to hear that you actually got to go out and collect some of them yourself. Sure. Yeah, it's a bit of a, you know, it's a marine biologist's dream, really, to go carrying on all around the Caribbean like that. Yeah, I was very, very fortunate. Yeah. Definitely. So I guess you have this sort of fairly incredible number of samples from these sort of like wide ranging populations. So I'm really curious as to what you did once you collected these samples. Like what was the genetic work that you undertook? So they came back to Manchester with me and we extracted the DNA. Uh, so that was particularly painful actually for this species. So like Don was saying before, they've got a lot of animals that kind of live within the sponge tissue themselves. And a senior campana I just has so many polychaete worms that live within the canals. So in order to avoid, you know, kind of contamination of the DNA with DNA from the worms, you know, there was a lot of sitting under a dissecting microscope <laughs> and pulling these tiny worms out of the tissue. <laughs> A lot of patients required. <laughs> oh yeah, I was seeing worms in my in my sleep practically. <laughs> 
Um, but once we'd got the DNA, we then developed uh, microsatellite markers for this species. There wasn't any available before. So this would allow us to characterize the genetic variation. So I assume probably most of the listeners to this already know about microsatellites, but they're non-coding genes that have a really high mutation rate. Uh, so they're very polymorphic. And this makes them great for detecting genetic differentiation between populations and measuring genetic diversity. And also the fact that they're non-coding means that you can attribute these genetic differences to gene flow and genetic drift rather than things like selection, for example. So once we'd developed the new markers, we genotyped all the samples and then did a lot of various analyses to look at yeah, those population structure patterns and genetic variation. Mm, fantastic. And what was it that you were finding? So what we found was there was a strong population structure at the regional scale, which is what we expected to see with that short larval duration that sponges have. But we also saw some quite unexpected patterns of connectivity, so of higher gene flow than we might expect between locations. So the most prominent example of this was probably between the Florida Keys, which all came out as one population, that area all over Florida. We saw that that had a much higher level of connection than you would expect to the site of Gray's Reef, which is just off the coast of Georgia on the southeast coast of the United States. So these sites are about 700 kilometers away from each other, but we actually saw them come out as a single genetic cluster. And this area is under the influence of the Florida current, which kind of whips past the Florida Keys from the west towards the east. Then it kind of drives, well, we suspect it's kind of driving larvae up through the Florida peninsula and beyond. But yeah, we were quite surprised to see that those areas were so well connected to each other. On the other hand side, we saw some areas that had a very high genetic differentiation that seemed to be caused by different kinds of oceanographic processes. So the main highlight of that was in southern Belize in the Sapodilla Keys. We found that was strongly differentiated from all other populations to the extent that it even could be a cryptic species, the fact that it's so differentiated. And this area is it's under a very retentive kind of oceanographic environment. So there's a gyre, which is a kind of circular current, kind of like, you know, picture it kind of like a whirlpool that's there in the Gulf of Honduras that could be stopping larvae dispersing and kind of trapping what's in there. So it becomes very genetically distinct, very isolated from other populations. So that was a really interesting finding as well from this. On the smaller spatial scales, so for example, within the Florida Keys, we saw quite a lot of gene flow happening, but patterns were a little bit patchy. So we didn't see isolation by distance, which is this distance decay relationship between geographic distance and genetic distance. So sites that are closer together, you would expect them to be more genetically similar if it was just the result of a kind of limited dispersal. But what we actually saw was this chaotic genetic patchiness all throughout the keys, uh, which kind of indicates that there might be some temporal variation in recruitment patterns and dispersal dynamics in this area. So this is pretty interesting. It could be due to oceanographic kind of variation in time. So yeah, I think Don could tell us a little bit more about the particular dynamics in that area. 
Sure, yeah, the Florida Keys are a remarkable place and from lots of different perspectives, but from the oceanographic perspective, they are particularly so because you know you look at them on a map and it you know looks like sort of a single line of islands that are connected sort of in the upper and middle keys and then you get in the lower keys and they're sort of oriented sort of stacked side by side. What what's interesting about it is the fact that much of that area, especially the near shore area and the shallow water where these sponges are, the mean water depth's only a meter. So there's some areas that are even shallower than that. But even then, when you go down in the lower keys where they're, you know, you see all, all the islands are sort of stacked side by side, there's channels between all those islands and the water just rips through those when the tide changes. So, you, you know, when, when you have a shallow water environment like that, you've got all these different really complicated circulation patterns so that there might be a population of sponges on one side of kind of a famous bridge in the Florida Keys is the Seven Mile Bridge, where literally the bridge is seven miles long. You might have a population on one side of that bridge and a population on the other side that are more different than a population 20 miles farther up the Keys because the water flow underneath that bridge and between those Keys is so strong, it effectively separates those populations. You know, anybody who's ever tried to map the hydrodynamics in the Florida Keys has probably walked away just exasperated because not only do you have so many small scale, you know, movements of water, it's constantly like stochastic too with storm events and things like that. So long story short, the hydrodynamics are complicated and they're probably what, you know, combined with the, you know, the genetics are are what's driving some of this. Yeah. And um, so we also looked at kind of very close together sites in Martinique. We had two sites which were just 15 kilometers away in distance. So based on the patterns that we saw in Florida and Panama, you would expect those to be really quite genetically homogenous, um, but they were actually moderately differentiated. So that was really interesting to see. Unfortunately, the um, hydrodynamics of that area on these very local scales haven't really been studied very recently. But we do know from kind of local knowledge in that area that there really is very strong currents that run between those sites. So that could be potentially blocking gene flow between those two areas. Uh, So yeah, we saw really the ocean conditions are potentially super important. In terms of genetic diversity, generally we saw that it was very high really across all populations. But very interestingly, in bamboo key in Florida, we saw that there was a signature of a genetic bottleneck and we also found um, positive significant inbreeding coefficient there. So this is an area that has suffered a mass mortality in the past. So it seems to be that this could possibly be the reason for seeing those genetic patterns there. Interestingly, another site that had suffered uh, mortalities in the past as well, uh, Long Key, that had very high genetic diversity, no bottleneck signature, no inbreeding. So that really shows that the site-specific nature is very important. So we can only hypothesize, but Bamboo Key is in a kind of sheltered bay area. There seems to be a local gyre there that could make it a little bit more cut off, whereas Long Key uh, lies in an area where there's a lot of current activity that could potentially allow it to get, uh, you know, if it had suffered a bottleneck from these mortalities, that gene flow could replenish the gene pool in a, in a lot better way than it's able to at Bamboo Key. Uh, so yeah, another testament to the power of the waves potentially. (laughs) 
No, it's it's fascinating. And it's really interesting though that you're kind of bringing up these sort of site-specific differences and these mass mortalities again there, um, because I guess that's what got you interested in this to begin with. And it sounds like a really complicated system, and in some cases, maybe slightly counterintuitive when you're just looking at them on a map. And Don kind of mentioned earlier sort of these mass mortalities and restorations, and I wonder what kind of conservation implications or sort of even wider biological implications this study is kind of having for these sponges. Yeah, so I think in terms of the restoration, there is some interesting findings that could be applied to that. So Don can probably discuss a little bit more about that kind of methodology for how you actually go about the restoration process. But what this really suggests is this high genetic diversity that we were seeing needs to be maintained. That could be very important for their capacity for resilience and adaptability against environmental change. And although they can reproduce asexually, so in some sponges, there seems to be quite strong uh, fragmentation that can happen in hurricanes and things like that. But here we saw that most of the samples that we collected, all the individuals genetically distinct. We only found a couple of pairs of clones in the whole data set. So yeah, although it's very useful that they can be fragmented into multiple pieces to try and make more sponges, perhaps we need to sort of concentrate on fragmenting many individuals into few pieces rather than a few individuals into many pieces uh, in order to maintain that diversity. I would say also that it would be very important to kind of keep an eye on the genetic diversity. We have these tools now, these microsatellite markers, we've got the methods. So let's keep an eye on the situation there to make sure that we don't see big losses in genetic diversity the next time one of these cyanobacterial blooms comes around. The other takeaway in Florida for me is that this patchiness points to some kind of unpredictability in dispersal patterns. So, you know, you can't always rely on the sites to sort of replenish themselves. They might need a bit of help on uh, the smaller spatial scale because you want to restore those ecosystem services and that function to that ecosystem, you know, really quickly to be able to try and keep the health of that system. The other kind of conservation implication that was very interesting to me was in terms of marine protected areas. So the result we got in South Belize in the Sapodilla Keys, that pattern of uh, strong differentiation, that's actually been recorded in other species as well. And and not just ones with short larval durations in fish species as well, for example. So this shows that this area is um, it's very important to preserve. It has a unique genetic diversity, but because it's perhaps limited in terms of the larval input into that area, you know, if something did happen there and populations declined, they probably would find it very difficult to recover. Yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Don. Yeah, no, I was going to just agree. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, the, the keys behind all of this is this idea of, you know, when you're trying to conserve species is understanding the connectivity. Because in the past couple of decades, it's really come to the fore that connectivity in the marine environment is not what we used to think it was. We used to think all marine populations were these wide open populations and connected to one another. So like all the different species in the Caribbean were connected and could sort of replenish one another with larvae. And sort of what we're finding more as we combine the biology and ecology with the genetics and with the oceanography is that that's not necessarily true. Certain populations, and the study highlights that, are highly connected and others aren't. And so when you're trying to conserve species in, or whole ecosystems, you really need to understand how connected you know, a particular area is 
to other areas. So you know, you know how likely it is to get supplied by larvae from another area. And then also similarly, if you know if you're if you sort of you know created a no-take reserve and and with the hopes of you know all these different species beginning to become more abundant and spawn, that that habitat then or ecosystem is connected to others, so that you know the larval subsidy or the excess larvae and organisms that are produced in that reserve can supply others. Um, and in the Florida Keys, in particular, with these sponges, as we said before, they're extremely important from an ecological perspective. And so we have done some restoration work there. I'm capitalizing on the fact that sponges are only at that cellular level of organization. So, we, you know, we can literally take these base sponges and slice them up like a birthday cake and take <laughs> little pieces of them and we, we strap them to little concrete bricks and we can distribute them out. So it's really handy and they will keel over and you'll come back a year later and you've got a little base sponge. It's curled up and formed like that little cup shape and you'll have a field of them that you can create to then use those to try and restore habitat. But the point Sarah brought up is that, yeah, we have have to, when we're doing that, is to be careful that we're using an, a, a diversity of individuals, but keeping in mind that obviously there's loads of different sponge species in the Florida Keys, and this is this is just but one of them. Yeah, but it's it's nice to hear that it's following sort of similar genetic trends, and I'm assuming that this kind of study is probably fairly representative of a lot of those sponges, and there's probably quite a lot of messages in there for marine conservation in general. Yeah, I think there are. I mean, as Sarah mentioned, there's a lot we don't know about sponges. As interesting, as cool as they are, um, well, most of them aren't commercially important. Like, they're not harvested in any way. So, you know, getting the funding to support research into them sometimes is tough to get. Studies like this that, that show the importance of sponges um, hopefully will sort of underscore the need to support research in, into understanding them further and understanding some more of their sort of the basic biology. Well, they're definitely a lot more interesting than I thought before reading this paper. And I guess just to finish up, I wonder if you could remind people listening about the title of this paper. And also, I know you've mentioned quite a lot of your co-authors and collaborators already, but is there anybody that so far hasn't been mentioned that really deserves some recognition? Uh, yeah, so uh, the paper is called Oceanographic Features and Limited Dispersal Shape the Population Genetic Structure of the Var Sponge, a Senior Campana in the Greater Caribbean. And the other authors, as well as myself and Don, are Mark Butler, who's at Florida International University, Thierry Perez, who's at the Mediterranean Institute of Terrestrial and Marine Biodiversity and Ecology, and Richard Preziosi, who is at Manchester Metropolitan University. Perfect. Well, thank you both very much for joining us and sharing this work with us. And hopefully people will now go and read your paper and appreciate sponges on a much deeper level than they have before. <laughs> And if they're interested, actually, I also wrote a blog post about some of the kind of behind the scenes stuff of this paper, some of the field work, you know, kind of light, fun reads. So if anyone wants to check that out as well, that is published on the Behind the Paper channel of the Nature, Ecology and Evolution community. So uh, people could also check that out if they would like to. I will make sure that we link it in the description. Yeah, that was a great blog post too. And if anybody wants to see, you know, this hard bottom that we've spoken about, there's a, a, a reasonably good picture of what really nice hard bottom looks like. And it's, it's really kind of fantastic um, when you see it. Um, it's hard to kind of imagine what it's like if you've never been on the bottom and seen it. Um, but yeah, no, thanks much, James, for, uh, for, for putting this together and then having us along. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks to Sarah and Don. If you want to see that beautiful image of the Florida hardbottom, Sarah used it in her blog post and we've used it for the episode artwork. And if you want to read their paper, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And if you want a completely different genetic story, 
head over to the Genetics Unzip podcast with Dr. Katarni. Here's a peek at their latest episode. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're taking a look at the ancient war between our genes and the pathogens that infect us, looking back thousands of years to the Black Death and before, all the way through to our very latest foe. One of the most curious things about COVID-19 is the wide variation in how it affects different people, from being a very serious or even fatal illness, through a range of strange symptoms that vary in their severity, to none at all. So, do these differences lie in our genetics? Or are there other factors at play? Plus, figuring out genetic susceptibility to the Black Death for the inhabitants of Cambridge's ancient graveyards and monitoring malaria in antique medical samples. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Another fascinating and topical episode. Also, if you didn't know, last week Kat Arney published a new book, Rebel Cell. Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, which investigates cancer and looks at how genetics holds the key to overcoming it. It's definitely on my read list, so if you get the chance, maybe you can check it out too. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetics Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening.